Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Feckety. I'm also the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I'm so glad that you're here today. This is a space that you're going to hear a lot of stories about recovery, addiction, men and women that have suffered from anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, trauma. We're going to have professionals on here as well. So I hope that it's not just this show that you listen to, but you go back and listen to the many other shows and the many other stories. And please subscribe and pass it on to somebody that you know that might be struggling and feel like they're alone. None of us are alone on this broken road to mental health. And I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the broken road. (laughs) Welcome to the broken road to mental health. If you have the great pleasure of watching this versus just listening, then you can see Frank King is here with us today. He's right in the middle of transporting the prisoners. As he told me when we first, uh, (laughs) keep it down back there, um, before we uh, hit record, but I'm very, very happy to have Frank King here today, who is a suicide prevention speaker, a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years, a full-time stand-up comedian for 37. And, you know, nothing screams funny like suicide and depression. So <laughs> welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you. Attica, Attica, Attica. A uh, little New York reference there for you. Uh, oh and showing my age, actually, in addition to the uh, reference, cultural reference. Yes, I am the mental health comedian. And that question I get often, um, well, that's the elephant in the room when I speak. I open my keynote by saying, okay, I know what you're thinking. Comedian, talking about depression, thoughts of suicide. How does that work? I think I'm a good choice, a couple of reasons. One is uh, the world's first comedian was the court jester. And the court jester's job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. Hmm. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. I believe there's humor, there's hope, where there's laughter, there's life, and nobody really dies laughing. And depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her nine years later. Uh, my great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And if you're that close to natural suicide, and if you see my first TED Talk, A Matter of Laugh or Death, you'll know I was very close to the suicide. The chance of you actually thinking seriously about taking your own life later in life go up. And in 2010, after filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy and losing everything my wife and I had earned and, you know, compiled in 25 years of marriage, I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Um, Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Mm, Thank God. Yeah. And that usually gets a nervous laugh from the audience. I follow it with this. A friend of mine recently saw me keynote. He came up after me and goes, hey, man, how come he didn't pull the trigger? Hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? (laughs) At that point, the audience knows, oh, this is going to be different than your average suicide prevention keynote. Hmm. So the humor is not jokes. It's funny, personal stories, observations. My first TEDx talk, I said to the audience, you know, when I was researching this, I went to TED.com figuring... Let's see how other people handle the topic. Thinking there'd be at least five, six dozen, at least, talks on suicide. There were three. Unbelievable. So I said to the audience, well, duh. <laughs> if you're really good at suicide, you're probably not going to be recording a TEDx talk. <laughs> and 
yeah, it's, it's dark humor, but it's it's not jokes. It's just personal. You know, my grandmother died using an old gas stove. My great aunt died using an old Loctite refrigerator. What is it with my family and major appliances? I mean, I drive past Home Depot, I tear up. (laughs) That's where the the humor comes from. Yeah, no. And um, I suffer from dark humor or Titus myself, uh, born and raised in New York. And my family is from Ireland. So there's a lot of... um, (laughs) There's a lot of really sad songs written about a lot of funny shit. So I appreciate it. And I I really did enjoy, I was telling you before we hit record that I had really gone down the rabbit hole and, um, and, and watched a lot of the Ted talks and, you know, the, the humor is a, a, a phenomenal part because it really does connect people. I feel like it probably lets the audience put their shoulders down a little bit, um, hear the message that you're relaying um, showing that there's hope, obviously, uh, in you and in, in many others that you affect. I, I do love the story that you tell about meeting the woman on the cruise ship. That, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it is, I understand myself, you know, writing a book about mental health and um, I'm sober 28 years, attempted suicide myself, not very successful, as you all can see in here too. Um, I think that when I say to somebody that I wrote a book about mental health, they ask you, you know, what do you do your talks on? And you say, oh, great, you know, here it comes suicide and depression. And then people just reveal themselves, you know, and what a gift to be able to be on the other end of that um, and, and hear people's stories and then be able to help them, you know, through humor and through offering hope and resources that you do. Yeah, the I think my superpower, and I, I realized this when I was reading Brene Brown's book, listening to an audible on vulnerability, I thought, oh my God, that's my superpower. Because a man, men don't normally talk about things emotional. True. Uh, go on stage, expose all the warts. I get choked up when I tell a couple of stories. Um, you know, the audience, they, they laugh, they cry. And many of my clients say to me, we just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide. Because as you said, um, even though hardly anybody talks about it, you mentioned the word suppression and suicide. Almost everybody's got a story of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I do a general Q&A when I finish the keynote. And I tell them before I do the general Q&A, look, if you got a story you want to share, question you want to ask, and you don't ask in front of everybody, I'll hang out 45 minutes and take them individually. Sometimes it's two people, sometimes it's 10. Mm-hmm. And most of the conversations start this way. I've never told anybody this. Really? I get that a lot. <laughs> I, I know, right? It must. It says right here on your forehead, you're invited. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine calls himself the permission fairy. Ding. Hey, hi. <laughs> yeah, but it's so good. I mean, I know, I, I'm sure that somebody has asked how you deal today with all of, because they've asked me, right? So many people share their story with me and I'm, I'm happy to hear it, but because I've suffered myself from depression and I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, I have to be very mindful and careful of my own healing and my own health. So people have asked me, you know, so what do you do? Do you, does it, is it too much? Is it taxing on you? What do you say to that? A couple things. One, um, I have a self-care plan. I, I think everybody should have one, whether you're neurotypical or neuronormal or, you know, uh, or live with mental illness. Um, diet, really simple diet, exercise, good night's sleep, medication, meditation. Very simple. Uh, all things, by the way, the thread. I tell people the thread and all those five things, all things I can control. 
diet, exercise, good night, sleep, meditation, medication. The rest of the world, I, you know, it's above my pay grade. I can't do anything about it. So you just want to let it go. Um, I have a condition called chronic suicidal ideation, chronic suicidal ideation, which is relatively rare. It's not even in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the big book of mental illnesses, yet. Maybe it'll be in the sixth. I've had, I've had uh, clinicians, when I say I've got chronic suicidal ideation, they stare at me like, uh, like Kim Kardashian at the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> Bless your heart. Uh, you mean yeah. the lawyer? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, um, by the way, I'm from the South, and so you can say anything you want about anybody you want, as long as you follow it. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. <laughs> Just dumb as a bag of hammers, bless his heart. She's not loose. She just user friendly, bless her heart. So, I uh, chronic suicidal ideation, simple example. Um, suicide is an option on the menu as a solution for problems large and small, always. And I tell the audience, like my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden one, get it fixed, two, buy a new, and three, I could just kill myself. And uh, the upside of telling that story, by the way, is every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience, sometimes more. There may be somebody listening right now who has chronic suicidal ideation and they've just realized, oh, dear God, that has a name. Mm -hmm. They just think there's some kind of freaking all alone. Young woman came up after a college showcase, goes, uh, thanks for the keynote, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, well, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, kill yourself. I've been having those thoughts all my life. I thought it was just me, some kind of, I, I did all alone. And I heard you say that out loud that you had it. And I realized I'm not alone. And I wept. Mm. So that's the power of telling the story. But the chronic suicidal ideation, ironically, with the suicidal ideation, I made a decision a long time ago that I could kill myself at any time I chose. I've crossed that barrier. So I believe suicide is not about wanting to kill yourself. I didn't want to kill myself. I believe it was more often about stopping the pain, ending the pain. Very much the way uh, substance abuse disorders, you know, it's a temporary, you know, yep. quieting the voices. Uh, so if, if it's about pain, and if I've already decided I can do it at any time, I can stand a great deal more pain knowing that I'm in control of, you know, if it gets too bad, well, you know, I'm sitting in the exit road next to the, window on the plane of life and i can just open the door and jump so ironically my suicidality uh, keeps me alive and so does like the young woman who came up after the college presentation i realized one night i was in billings montana i was standing outside waiting for my ride it was dusk it was snowing and there's a river running nearby near the river and i thought to myself oh dear god I'm like George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. Hmm. I've been showing what these people's lives might be like if I weren't there simply to reassure them that they're not alone. And if I kill myself, I, I would theoretically take some of these people with me. Hmm. A friend of mine goes, you couldn't live with that? I go, no, you missed the point. I couldn't die with that. And you know where that came from? A friend of mine's father was in AA for 20 years before he passed away. Somebody asked him, will you ever drink again? He goes, no. They said, well, how, how can you say that? He said, because I've sponsored so many people and I'm going to sponsor so many people that if I dive back into that bottle, I would take some of those people with me. Mm -hmm. And I just can't live with that. So that's that's what gave me the idea. I thought, okay. And my mother had difficulty having children. Uh, my mother and father wanted children desperately. My mother got pregnant, carried it to term, and shortly after birth, it passed away. Mm -hmm. And then uh, about a year later, she got pregnant again. 
and carried it to term. And shortly after birth, it passed away. <clears throat> Somehow, some way, she found the courage to try a third time. And I was born a fourth time my sister was born. So my feeling is she was so brave and worked so hard to bring me here that I have to be at least as brave and work at least as hard to stick around until my appointed time. That's probably the number one reason. Mm, that's so beautiful. Really. Thank you for sharing that. I am. Um, mm -hmm. It's very emotional. It's um, I was thinking uh, throughout watching your, your talks and, and just listening to all of it. Um, that emotional side, you know, you're so funny, obviously the first, you know, we were laughing within 30 seconds. Um, I think that it's such um, a pain point to talk about the families because I know for me, I always felt like such a burden and mm -hmm. I, I love telling people today that you're, you're not a burden because that's really, I felt so strongly that everybody would be better off without me. And that's Burns a real, them. right? It's a real deep, dark thought to have. But once I started talking about it, I realized how many people felt the same way. And um, and I think that it's it's incredibly brave to to stay. Incredibly hard sometimes, but incredibly brave. So you have um you have done many talks. You are now helping people give TEDx talks. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Well, first, before we do that. What led you to go from, you know, writing for The Tonight Show and full-time stand-up to corporate besides the money? Or was it just the money? I mean, let's just be real. Well, the jump from the club to the corporate comedy was money. People say, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? About $5,000 a day plus travel. <laughs> yeah, I'm no matter, but. And then during the last recession, oh, seven, eight, nine, conventions just stopped. Yeah. Uh, at least booking speakers and especially comedians just stopped. Right. And so when uh, when conferences came back, meeting planners said to me, speakers bureaus, look, Frank, we love you, but we can't pay you five grand for 45 minutes of just jokes. You got to teach them something. Mm. So I thought, oh, Lord, what am I? Because I always wanted to make a living and a difference somehow. Yeah. So I got a book by a woman, a friend of mine named Judy Carter called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And uh, she gave me a copy. Said, Frank, look, just dive in. And I thought, I, I got nothing. About halfway through her book, I thought, oh, my Lord, uh, given my, my family history of mental illness, more nuts in my family than a squirrel turd, um, <laughs> my, my mental illness uh, and my brush with suicide, close brush yeah. with suicide, I thought, I could, if I got some training, certifications, I could, I could teach suicide prevention. So I did, I have several certifications. Uh, and my next uh, hurdle was, okay, you've been a comic for two and a half decades. How do you convince people, meeting planners, you can do something serious? My wife said, do a TEDx. And I mm. said famously, what's a TEDx? And just that week, I got an invitation from a TEDx in Vancouver, British Columbia. I said, would you, wow. would you like to apply? Sure. And I got it and I did my suicide prevention talk my first one uh, matter of laugh or death mentioned robin williams because he just passed away by suicide because i'd worked with him a couple times mm -hmm. and that you know that gave me the gravitas uh, to begin to rebrand from a comedian to the mental health comedian and then uh, two other events saw that talk 
and said, do you have any more mental health topics? We'd like to have you come and do them. So I, I did, I had a couple of other ideas. And then I applied for four more. And then I have a big presence on LinkedIn now. And TEDx in India found me, uh -huh. like my take on mental health. They like the fact that, they say, we've never heard anybody say anything positive about mental illness, except you. Mm. So the eighth one is called, I'm not broken, I was made this way. Because I believe my depression, thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my creativity, imagination, and comic ability. I mean, same brain, same wiring. How could it be? I tell people, look, I can teach you to write stand-up, perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process the incoming information the way my strange brain does. Mm. My favorite one, by the way, was the fifth one. It was called, and this one, I didn't have to audition for this. They, they like the title and subtitle so much they booked me. It's called Mental Health in the Orgasm. Nice. Depression still handedly. <laughs> I yeah. love it. I love my iPhone, but it's my second favorite handheld device. <laughs> uh, that was the pitch. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. That's great. You know, um, oh my God. Do you listen? Did you ever read the book or do you know John Moe with the hilarious world of depression? No, I know the. Um, there's another one out of LA, Happy Hour, the Depression Happy Hour. It's a former comic. Okay. Well, you would love this, Frank, uh, because it's all comedians that get interviewed oh. by John Moe. Yeah. And um, I've loved it. And, you know, when I tell people, when I recommend books and I say like, you know, the hilarious world of depression, they're like, what's hilarious about depression? Well, you'd, you'd actually have to be <laughs> depressed to understand how hilarious it could actually be. And you, you really, you know, you, you can't take yourself too seriously. Laughter is, it's no joke. It's like the best medicine. I wanted to ask you something serious though, because I'm, I'm really interested in this generational trauma that you have endured and, and your thoughts mm -hmm. about um, if you think it's hereditary. I mean, if you were to just be any mo looking at the history of your family, you would think, well, yeah, obviously there's some uh, genetic shit going on down there. Um, so do you think that the, because just processing that trauma of what's happened in your own family, of course, you're going to take some of that heaping mess on yourself and, and, and watching the pain of your relatives go through all of this and, and yourself such a young child. I mean, it went right through me when you talked about your family member who came out of the refrigerator. I mean, you make the joke about the appliances, but my God, the story is so unbelievable, Frank. So oh, yeah. what are your thoughts about generational trauma and generational suicide? Well, I, you know, there is some evidence that scientific evidence that trauma can be passed from generation to generation. If it was a particularly um, violent marriage, then the children who were a product of the marriage, you know, if it was, um, you know, an intimate partner, their violence and that that can that can have an impact apparently uh you know and pass it forward um pretty much everybody in my family is on some sort of psychotropic except one cousin parker who not only did not get the nuts he he's the only person in the family who doesn't have high cholesterol and we all hate him with a passion so <laughs> damn him uh, even his name is annoying. Damn him yeah it's Sounds in the so DNA. <laughs> it's in the dna i'm afraid it's in uh it just seems to be i mean there is evidence that that there is uh, i've got a therapist friend who's got a client and the depression suicide go back five generations mm. 
And I've met a lot of people who say, you know, after you said that, I thought to myself, you know, like my aunt and my cousin, and all of a sudden it begins to fall into place for people. Wait, now, um, it's like cancer. You have cancer in your family. Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to get cancer. Uh, however, um, epigenetics would would say that the cancer is, you know, the gene or whatever is there, but maybe not turned on. And so if you have cancer in your family and you never have any sort of outside force, you know, um, a chemical uh, stress, you know, something to cause the, the gene to turn on, mm. then you may never have cancer. So it's not, DNA is not destiny. Right. Um, and, uh, but in our case, uh, pretty much everybody except that one cousin has an issue, uh, depression. My sister has depression and anxiety attacks. Um, so yeah, pretty much. Because all friends, yeah, the whole family. So, yeah, but all very, <laughs> all very funny. All you said, yeah. I mean, well, my mom was funny. My sister's funny. That's amazing. Well, you know, when you might be the only one in the family that talks openly about it. Yeah, I see. <laughs> um, you experience, you know, a, a great sense of denial, and I think that you know although it might live within a family, there's not a lot of talk about it being, you know, well, this person had depression or this person had this, there's no actual, you know, uh, label put on it, but it's definitely, you know, it, it runs through it in other ways. I'm the lucky one, you know, that was, um, that got sober. So at least, you know, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, but they almost sometimes don't even speak on the depression um because then everybody tells me how they were depressed once and that's that makes me feel better yeah no i was really down yeah i was so like sad a, narcolepsy somebody said to her everybody's sleepy Nah, this is a different kind of sleepy it is this is a different uh, well but and you know when when i when i was four years old my great aunt fell out of that refrigerator and pinned me to the floor uh her face frozen that last moment of horror um I didn't recall it consciously. And mm. the family, my mom and that generation made up a myth. That if I ever asked about it, I was to be told that when the, my mom opened the refrigerator door where my aunt had crawled in, that she was sitting there with her hands folded in prayer looking serene. So that's the story I'd been told but because I had no conscious memory of it. And then I repeated it to my cousin, the one we all hate because he doesn't have high right. cholesterol. No mental health, mental Parker. health problem. Mm -hmm. Parker. Uh, in 2012, I told Parker that, and he goes, What? Because he's 10 years old and I am. He goes, What? No, that's bullshit. Yeah. The old bat fell out and pinned you to the floor. Like, oh, <laughs> oh, all of a sudden it just came. Whoosh. Wow, you know, it came back. Where it was, yeah, where it was walled off, it's like, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah. Thank you, Parker, which was part of the genesis of my career speaking on suicide prevention because between the suicide near attempt and you know my now i know now i know the family history and the myth has been busted and so yeah it was uh it was bullshit <laughs> wow the folded hands and everything you really had a yeah a vision Serene. oh my like goodness yeah. yeah yeah he goes no he goes she what he said worse than that he said um she crawled in there pulled the door shut and then apparently tried you know changed her mind tried to claw her way out so when she fell on you, you know, there's blood, broken nails. And there was just, I'm like, oh, thanks, Parker. Um, 
Mom, I already see my therapist. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Parker. Well, the, and being a comedian, the joke I wrote was, somebody said to me, have you ever been impacted by a suicide? I go, yeah, the bitch pinned me to the floor. <laughs> That's the dark side. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I mean, and in all of this, you you do provide so many great resources for people that are struggling. And I think, you know, as soon as you said it, I I felt really good about something that I know is a very difficult question to ask, which I do often, which is, are you having suicidal thoughts? That is the question that saved my life from my father's EAP, Employee Assistance Program um, yeah. counselor at New York Hospital many, many years ago had the courage to ask me that question. So I am sure to pass that on to many today, but you have a lot of, um, I loved the examples that you give of the things not to say, and then maybe some, <laughs> maybe some suggested terms instead. Let's start with yes. what and, not to say. Well, just before we get to that, every now and then somebody, because I have chronic suicidal ideation, it's, it's like Muzak, it's always running underneath or DOS running underneath the uh, windows. Somebody said to me, when, when was your last thought of suicide? I go, what time is it? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, uh, I love screwing around with normal people. It's wonderful. Um, the normies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how are you feeling? I'm depressed and suicidal. How about you? What? <laughs> I was in, I got in an Uber one day. I'm exhausted. That's when my editor goes to sleep in my head. And the young kid, our eyes lock in the mirror. And he goes, hey, man, how you doing? I go, uh, I'm going to tell him. I'm depressed and suicidal, man. How about you? Uh. What am I supposed to say to that? He said, I said, you're supposed to ask me if I have a plan. <laughs> he goes, do you have a plan? And then it hits him and he turns in his seat and he goes, does it involve Uber? <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Yes. And wrong all at the same time. Fantastic. Yeah. One of my favorite things. So, you know, uh, when people, I talk a lot about, you know, what we should do when we're meeting other people. If you really want to get to know somebody, just come in and ask them what fucked them up. <laughs> because that's really all i want to know yeah i don't yeah. want to know about the weather i don't want to know about your career or anything else i just want to know how you got so fucked up <laughs> well and occasionally when i meet a heroin addict i'm um, sorry i meet uh somebody who's particularly a religious zealot i mean like you know nothing worse than a new believer um Ugh, lord have mercy and i go you know and, and they go on and on about whatever religion it is they go listen let me just one question for you when did you kick the heroin because i find that they were addicted to heroin now they're addicted to religion oh, lord it just seems mm -hmm. like yeah. yeah which is fine i mean it's a much healthier addiction um we think but yeah anyway <laughs> the um yeah because people mean well yes they, when you say you're depressed uh you know um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps a classic uh, turn that frown upside down. Go outside and get some exercise. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you need to exercise. Last time, first time anybody said it to me was shortly after I nearly killed myself. You need to get some exercise. You need to bite my ass. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was I, watching I, marathon television for like, I don't know, 12 hours a day. And I was told you, all you need to do is go outside and get some exercise. I was like, shit. I wish I had a thought of that. Yeah, dear God, how did I miss that? <laughs> well, it's like the old uh, urban legend, never missing the word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed because it might give them the idea. Suicide, 
What a great idea. Why didn't I, I would have never of thought of that? Yeah. Trust me, it crossed my mind. Uh, and the irony is it makes it less likely they'll die by suicide if you bring it up. Yeah. So uh, my favorite, I think, was uh, you need to choose joy. And I said, look, if you're not talking about dishwashing liquid, I'm out of luck. It's not choose to be. It's not a choose. Now I can choose my behavior, hmm. you know, when I'm depressed. Right. And I used to say that I fight depression, but that's not true because it implies I can win. Mm. realize I can't win. I can tie and stay alive or, you know, lose and die. So what I do is I, I look at it as, um, you know, here comes a wave of depression. So I, I get on my surfboard, mental surfboard, and I, 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 I ride the wave of depression. I just go with the energy. It's an, there's a martial art called Aikido, where rather than oppose your opponent, you blend with their energy and uh, you know, you, you you actually move them around in a circle, then lower them to the ground because you take their balance. But the idea is you blend with that energy. So I try to blend with the energy of depression. I know it's only going to last three days. That's my cycle. <laughs> I just ride the wave until it breaks. And then, you know, rather than push back against it, which takes a great deal of effort and is, is useless. Mm -hmm. um, the question comes up, what are you supposed to say to somebody who's depressed? Well, here's what I would say. Look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy or lazy or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I'll mm -hmm. take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And then, of course, you have to ask the question you mentioned was, are you having thoughts of suicide? Mm -hmm. And I tell my audience, look, if you can't ask that question, find somebody you can. And if you can't find anybody who will, here's my, I put my cell phone number up on the screen. Call me and I'll ask them. Yeah, there you go. And, and I say, look, if you're suicidal, dial 988. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell. And Every now and then, somebody calls, texts with right. a question about themselves, somebody else, yeah. Um, had a young man call one time, sounded young. I can't believe this is really your cell number. I said, dude, how bad would the karma be? That would be bad. You're having, yeah, bad day, call this number. I go, I'll make it worse. As a comedian, oh. I'll make it worse for you. Hold, please. And I said, you know what the whole music's going to be? He goes, no. I go, another one bites dust. No, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> wow well that you know uh that is true for what happened to me the first time i um i really just took too many tylenol pms one night like to think that that was going to kill me is almost hysterical today but i did call the suicide hotline a long time ago i was 18 i think i'm 50 today and um they did they put me on hold <laughs> so i laughed you know thank god like i have that twisted sense of humor i'm like well this is you can't even get this shit right. This is bad. <laughs> so, and I love that you talk about, you know, getting the mental health uh, certification. I did that myself a few years ago. It turns out mine expired and I have to renew it. I, I did not know I could go get that certification and it would expire. I'm glad I wasn't promoting that I was one because I've expired. <laughs> but um, I do think that there's so many resources today, like you mentioned, 988. Um, but really having the the courage to just open up. And, and sometimes it's really just sharing your own experience and your own vulnerability, right? That you mentioned, give a lot of street cred to uh, that Brené Brown chick. She seems to know what she's yeah, talking well, about. What I noticed was that when I'm on stage and I usually open up with, uh, you know, I put a gun in my mouth. Uh, I can tell you what the barrel of gun tastes like. You can see, almost see the people who have a mental challenge leaning forward. Yeah. Like this shit's not academic for him. And then the neurotypical is like, oh, dear God. Yeah. So it's part of the keynote is for neurotypicals, neuronormal people 
try to decode the whole thing. It's hard to wrap your mind around how life could be that bad. Um, and then part of it's for the mentally, you know, people with a challenge who I'm trying to help destigmatize it because you, most people have an idea in their brain, in their mind, what mental illness looks and sounds like. And you see me on stage and I wrote for Leno and I've been a comic all these years, obviously high functioning to a certain point. It's just hard to hold those, you know, the guy on the corner with a sign and we'll work for food and this comic on stage, they both are mentally ill. How can that, you know, so right. uh, break the silence. I believe you break the stigma and give people, again, give people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences. So, yeah, I always say the goal, only way to normalize it is to talk about it, right? Yep. And my goal is to save a life a day. That's my, my goal. It's a pretty damn good goal, Frank. I like it. Well, I would highly recommend everybody that is listening or watching to um, call the police because Frank has not gotten any <laughs> of the prisoners back into the car. No. <laughs> um, to, uh, to check out the great TEDx talks. They really are fantastic. And um, I, I really do like that you bring attention to um, the college students and, and how many people are, are, are dying and, and educating the community oh, yeah. and, um, and supporting people just by, by sharing stories. So um, I really appreciate what you're doing to help somebody else not feel so alone, Frank. Well, and you are apparently doing this uh, every week on your podcast. So Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, you know, indeed. it's uh, uh, destigmatizing it. I think, um, I think that's uh, one of my clients, one of TEDx coaching clients. I got to help her get a TEDx, and she's um, her folks are from um, Pakistan, and they were furious. She talked on stage on in her TEDx about um, her alcoholism and three suicide tips. Mm. And her mother said to her, we don't talk about that in our community. And she said, that's exactly why yeah. I did it. Because I can't be the only one. Thank God for people like her, too. Yeah. And by the way, Tylenol PM is, a, is actually a step up from her first attempt. She was eight years old and she tried to overdose on Flintstone vitamins because the only thing she could reach in the medicine cabinet. Yeah, and you can't overdose on Barney's, it turns out. Uh, <laughs> Benny's? Watching it, maybe. Watching that damn show, maybe. Yeah, sugar coma, maybe, uh, but uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's, um, again, it's, you know, there are certain communities where, you know, they don't, um, uh, Native Americans, Alaskan Americans, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, so. I'm sure you hear all the time, just like I do, in my culture, Sharon. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, you mean all yeah. of them? Like every one of them, you know, yes. in, Sharon in Ireland, Sharon in Alaska, Sharon in Pakistan. Yeah, I know. Everywhere. We don't talk about it. Hence the shitstorm. Frank, thank you so much for being here. I hope you do come back one day. When oh, you're done with the prisoners. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd be delighted. Uh, do you speak on, I mean, do people ask you to speak on the subject? Yes, I will gladly say in this podcast that I secured my first keynote and I will be doing it in Boca Raton in July, in June. And are you getting paid for it? I sure is. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, my advice, you didn't ask, but um, with my speaker coaching clients, uh, ask for at least five grand plus travel. Uh, if you're already asking for more, that's great. Yes. But yeah, I I always tell my clients, look, ask retail, you can always discount. 
That's right. Start up here and see what happens. Well, Frank, yes, I think that you're definitely needed. I am so happy to hear that you are. um, I think one of the hardest things for anybody that has struggled with alcoholism, addiction, depression, (laughs) is to now turn to get paid for doing something that I've been giving away for free for so long. So I know that I'm not alone in that. And there are many out there. We need speakers um, like me, like you to normalize this very difficult conversation and there's no better way to do it sometimes than with humor. So I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk to you when I hit stop. Okay. So everybody I'm done with you. I'm going to selfishly go (laughs) and talk to Frank now about, you know, making sure that I'm getting paid enough. Bye. Yes. (laughs) Thanks, Frank. You're welcome.